welcome to Launch, the GCC podcast. I'm your host, Marty Duran, Director of Communications for the Great Commission Collective. We're a global network of churches partnering together to plant churches and strengthen leaders. Today on Launch, we're going to be talking about plurality. I'm going to be speaking with Dave Harvey for a while about his book, The Plurality Principle, which I've been reading personally and have found it to be extremely beneficial. This is a really, really good book. Um, I wasn't familiar with the word plurality up until uh, very recently. Uh, I was familiar with the idea of uh, leadership in teams in churches, uh, pastor, elder being the same, and uh, pastoral team needing to serve together. But the concept of plurality and a lot of the concepts in the book uh, I had not fleshed out in my mind as well as Dave has. So if you've read the book, I hope this will, maybe there will be some supplemental stuff here. And if you haven't read the book, I hope this will be an encouragement to pick it up because it really is worth your time. Welcome back to Launch, everyone. It's great to be with you. And I'm joined today by uh, GCC's president, my sometimes co-host, but he's actually the guest today, Dave Harvey. Dave, how are you? Marty, good to be with you. Are you uh, are you in the land of sunshine and and roses again this week? Eighty eight degrees right now, <laughs> Southwest Florida. Dude, I think that's just, that's like a meme. You don't even have to look at the thermometer. It's just every time somebody asks you, it's eighty eight degrees right now. Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be sweltering soon enough. But, uh, <laughs> this is this is the glory season down here. That's awesome. Hey, uh, I'm really happy that we're able to talk about your new book, Plurality Principle: How to Maintain and Build a Thriving Church Leadership Team. I think I told you offline already that this has really been a, an encouraging book to me. I wish I'd had it. I wish you had written this earlier, Dave. I really do. Um, because I could have used it in my last pastorate. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, I appreciate your encouragement. I do. I've, uh, other people have mentioned some encouraging things about it, but I, you know, it's, it's like you've written some stuff. So you understand you, you write out of your mistakes. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes out of the ways that grace has been made available to you. And, uh, and so I'm glad that my, my mistakes and some of the things that maybe have been done right are of help to other people. Well, you know, the, the, the wise man's saying supposedly is uh, a wise man learns from his own mistakes, but a wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. So you're allowing the rest of us to be wiser, Dave. Well, thank you. Um, so let's jump right in. Um, the title itself would have thrown me for all kind of loops uh, as recently as just, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe, because plurality was not a word that I personally was familiar with. It might have been circulating in some uh, realms of evangelicalism, but it wasn't one of my terms. So what does it mean? How did you land on it for use uh, talking about leadership in churches? Yeah. So plurality is just the historical way to describe the overwhelming New Testament evidence that local church leadership was shared. Mm. Specifically, it was shared by elders. And so the, the New Testament terms for pastor, overseer, elder mm -hmm. um, in, in Scripture are never used to talk about a single guy ruling or a single guy leading um, by, by himself. They're always used with, with, a, with the plural and so whether it's Acts chapter 4, where elders, plural, are, or 14, sorry, elders, plural, are appointed, appointed to every church, or Acts 20, overseers, plural, shepherd the flock. You know, we could go right through the New Testament with examples like that, but it's always in the plural. Um, so you, that is one of the things that I noticed uh, growing, growing in ministry, I should say, as I began to study, was the, the, 
the kind of um, uh, ability to change those terms, exchange those terms, not change those terms, but exchange those terms um, around and that there was always a plurality of leadership, even though I didn't use that word. Um, so, so I should have expected that that was going to be the case. Um, but my context in which I grew up, and I guess probably the time frame in which I grew up too, there was an enormous emphasis on, like, I guess what's called the CEO model of leadership. Um, but you describe a first among equals oriented plurality. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, the when, when we talk about first among equals and what some people call today lead pastor, um, back in the day when I was a lead pastor, it was senior pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, th there is no killer passage that kind of nails this down. Uh, you know, we, we derive this idea from a pattern that we see in Scripture. I think that, that that's rooted all the way back in the economic trinity um, uh, of headship, home. And I want to say real quick that the lead pastor, senior pastor is not the head of a plurality in the way that a man is the head of the home or <laughs> Or anything like that. I, I'm just making the case that across the pages of the Old Testament and New Testament, there is a pattern of 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 many being served and led by one. Mm. And so, what we're talking about here is is co-equal and co-responsible elders recognize that there is one person that is uniquely gifted and with sufficient character. Who can serve them, mm -hmm. and you know, typically that that gifting is in preaching and and leadership. I, I should probably mention, like, when you asked me the first question, Marty, one of the other things to mention about the plurality in general is that plurality means that the authority for the church, it it's 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 it inheres or it's invested by God, not into a single man, mm -hmm. but into men, into mm -hmm. all of the elders equally. And so it's not like the senior pastor has a special deposit of authority for the church, but the church is led with a team, and the church is led through a team. And, uh, you know, in a, in a very real sense, the, the, the team wisdom is better than, than one guy's genius. And so the, that team then appoints one person or they recognize one person who is uniquely gifted to be able to serve the plurality and serve the church with their gifts. And, and you know, a job description for that guy, you know, one that I've recommended and I talk about in the book. And again, this is drawn from, you know, just the way I'm reading scripture, but also just wisdom and experience. Um, that that guy is the custodian of the plurality. In mm -hmm. other words, he's responsible to see that the elders are are led and cared for. He's the catalyst of progress, uh, responsible for the elders' uh, doctrinal and personal growth, and and evaluating that together with them. Uh, curator of culture. And see, you can see this is kind of nuanced, but I, I, I intended it to be so because I, I really think when we talk about what makes churches 
effective and fruitful and multiplying there it does go down to culture so mm-hmm. we have somebody then on the, the the whole team takes responsibility for the cult culture but the lead pastor has this unique stewardship where he protects and cultivates that church's unique mm-hmm. vision and, mm-hmm. and mission and and flavor so we got custodian of the plurality cat, catalyst of the progress curator of the culture, captain of communication. In other words, he's he's just the leadership voice. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the elders speak or when there's preaching that needs to be done, this is the guy that typically does it. And uh, and then the last one is just connector for, for partnerships. He, he represents the church to its network or denomination, or he appoints the person who, who's going to do so. So those are the ways that uh, I I talk about some of the ways I should say I talk about it in the book. You talk about so, a healthy uh, plurality culture. Uh, you and I both have been around churches long enough to know that leadership teams can get all kinds of sideways and guys not talking to each other and guys' wives not talking to each other. <laughs> just just all kinds of messed up. Um, but you talk about the need to have a healthy plurality culture with the roles for the senior leader and the rest of the team should be defined and they should be workable. So what are the, some of the things that uh, pluralities should work toward in this regard? You know, one of the things I think about, Marty, that's kind of a bridge between your, your last question and this question and, you know, leads me into this question, though. But I think this needs to be said. I've found over time that the more gifted the the leader is the the senior guy is uh, the it's often assumed that the less necessary the plurality is mm-hmm. and 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 what happens is with with uniquely gifted guys um, you know it's it's like Marty you get this because you and I are the same way you know we, we kind of dwell with the within this common and familiar range of talent. But, uh, you know, just like in the sports world, there are these guys with unique talents that have always walked a different road. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, somewhere in their journey, they've discovered that they, they get things more quickly. They diagnose problems more quickly. They retain information. They express ideas. They galvanize people. They can win over the room with their, with their charm. And, uh, and, and what happens is for those guys, the team represents an obstacle and and they believe plurality is necessary in the sense that they they can traffic in the language of it, mm-hmm. but it's not really necessary for them. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that I, I try to make a case that for this guy, that guy needs the plurality even more because he's even more vulnerable to to stumble and fall because of of some of those unique gifts and and the way that that those gifts have been handled and the things that have been assumed about him over the years because of those gifts. Mm. So, um, you, you know, the, the way that works then on the team to get, get to your question, you know, I think that, that it, it begins to spread the workload out when you have, when you have plurality. Um, it isn't just that senior guy who's doing everything. Uh, it, it, it's first a senior guy. So one of the things it does is it it allows us to fill roles according to gifts. Uh, but, you know, a, a senior guy can be appointed, and mm-hmm. it's not just this thing that's where where there's churches within a church because all of the co-equal elders all have their own division of responsibility, and there's nobody 
you know, who's kind of uniting and uh, and ensuring there's fruitfulness and, and unity. So I, I, I think that's that's one thing that the, the plurality cultures, a healthy plurality culture is producing uh, is that that spreading of the workload. I, but I think there's even there's even you know, that's kind of a functional one. There's there's more important cultural ones. For instance, a, a, a healthy plurality is going to be creating together a model to apply truth together and then export that experience to the church out of the reality of what they are they are doing together. Mm-hmm. So in, in a very real sense, the the plurality is a microcosm of the church. And and what they become together ends up being exported to the church. That's why you know the the, the theme of the book is the, uh, the 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 health of the plurality determines or the quality of the plurality determines the health of the church. Mm-hmm. And that's the fundamental theme of the the entire books because you know the, there's a spillover effect. And when that sours, when those relationships sour, it tends to have a profound effect upon the church. Yeah, it does. And the opposite is true as well. Um, so I mentioned the the very well-known, at least in the American context, the, the CEO model. Um, and we're now talking about shared leadership. And you talk about a sharing of power and acknowledging that. Um, how does that look practically, though? Because you... I think you and I have both been in like staff meetings in local church uh, ministry where we've been the one who is like overseeing the group of elders. So we're the lead person, the senior person. And we've also had opportunities to serve where we're a, a staff person. So we're looking or we're serving with or alongside that senior person. And we know the challenge of leading, for instance, conversations where anything that you say as the senior person can have the effect of shutting down all the conversation or in a, as a staff person, you wonder, should I really say this or am I going to get stepped on if I say something like this in this group? Am I going to get the side off from the pastor? Um, what does this shared power look like practically? Are we talking about taking turns preaching all the time or taking turns with all the decision-making and it just becomes month by month, everybody's doing something different. What does it look like at a practical level to share power in this way amongst the plurality? Well, let's, let's start upstream a little bit more and work our way down to some of the practicals. I, I, I think it's important for guys that read a lot of Christian leadership books to realize that most models of leadership are formed, uh, have been heavily influenced by the business world. Mm -hmm. And the business world has been heavily influenced by military uh, or warfare. And, and, and so what, what ends up being passed down to us in the church is this top down power centralized command directed kind of leadership. Which, by the way, is necessary for the military. Right. So I think one time you, you and I were talking, I said, my, my, my sons had five deployments in the Army, two of them to, to hot zones. And when he was there, I would not have wanted him to have a superior officer who was collaborating with him right. you know, <laughs> over whether to take a hill or whatever. Because in a situation like that, you need, you need command and control. Um, and so in order to do military, you have to have these these coercive command structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just can't import that into a world where the culture 
is supposed the leadership culture is supposed to be defined by the fruits of the spirit, mm-hmm. by humility and patience and collaboration. And and so it, it's it we have to really understand that that we're not talking about we're not advocating the abandonment of authority. What we're recognizing is that is that Jesus just changed everything up mm-hmm. and and called us to steward it differently. So the mother of James and John comes comes along and says, "Hey, you know, can I have one son sit on my right, the other on your left?" And the, the tenor indignant, and Jesus kind of huddles them up, and he says, "You know that the ruler of the, of the Gentiles lorded over them; the great ones exercise authority over them." And then he says, "This it shall not be so among you." Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to describe how you know the greatest is is the, the servant of all, and 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 Marty, you know that signals a profound shift in the nature of leadership, right? From you know a coercion to a humility, from a control to a to a service, and uh, that's why in in Great Commission Collective we have you know we have seven cultural values: gospel integrity, relational connection, intentional care, contextual application, healthy plurality, kingdom focus, and deliberate collaboration. Mm-hmm. Deliberate collaboration is a is a really important one because it means that we're called we're sharing the load, we're sharing responsibility, we're sharing authority, we're sharing power, we open up problems. And, and we do this because of Jesus. We do this because, you know, when we look at Paul's ministry, I, I think there are ways that you can read Paul through a command and control orientation. But I think when he's when Paul's doing that, he's he's exercising his responsibility as as basically, you know, the what's equal to the to an apostle of the Lamb. Mm. And uh and and somebody who is unique in redemptive history. Uh, but but this person who is unique in redemptive history is also setting up elderships. Uh, turning over power and control, delegating to, to Timothy and mm-hmm. Titus. Uh, he's saying to uh, Onesimus, I, "I would, I'd be glad to keep, or, or about Onesimus, I'd be glad to keep him with me, in order that he might serve me. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, mm-hmm. in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion." So he 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 gives away this power. So you know that gets that gets practical, Marty. Then you know t- where we started. When you see uh, ch- church planters mm. that that share power by setting up a plurality, because so often they they plant the church. Man, all all attention's on them. Um, oftentimes they do that with other elders. Oftentimes they don't. There comes this defining moment where they have to turn it over, and they have to empty themselves of some of that and share it with others. Mm. Or, or when the senior pastor relates to the team like they are indeed co-equal, and he's listening, and he's actually allowing himself to be influenced by them, then you know there's a real power-sharing dynamic that's in play that I think brings great glory to God. You have a very specific uh, reference to a, um, a doctrinal. Uh, issue at John Piper's church a number of years ago where um, he and the rest of his elders or the rest of the elders at Bethlehem Church uh, were 
uh, discussing, debating, praying through, I think it was, was it a specific divorce posi- position? I can't remember exactly, but it was a specific- yeah, d- divorce and remarriage. Okay. Um, and Piper held one position that the other elders ultimately did not adopt. So they adopted a different, uh, position for the church, not just like we won the debate. They, they adopted an entire a, a position for the church that did not align with how Piper came to, to view the, the, the situation in his own personal study. And he uh, humbled himself to accept and then present to the church, this is what our position is going to be. And when, when I read that story in the book, um, I really felt like that that was an example of sharing, both sharing leadership and recognizing that every person in the plurality is ultimately uh, humble or servant to the plurality as a whole. Yeah. I mean, you know, John Piper being John Piper could have trumped them in any number of ways Mm -hmm. and, you know, could have pulled any number of cards out and thrown it on the table as a big Trump card. Um, And what I love about that story is not only did he share with the church uh, the decision of the elders and and accurately represent the decision of the elders. But then the elders also insisted that John Piper have the opportunity to share why he dissented. Mm. And so the church was was uh, was able to to observe this strong leadership that was able to walk in unity despite the fact that there was dissent. They were able to observe John Piper's humility. And his deference to the elders, mm-hmm. even though he disagreed, and and you know the church just sees strength in the in the plurality, and uh, and and goes forward in a in a more unified way. Um, you write a lot, and I've heard you speak some uh, now in my time at GCC, and and joy comes up fairly regularly when you're writing or when you're talking. Um, you, you have a, uh, there's an emphasis on your life and ministry. It seems like on joy. Um, and so that comes up in the book, uh, as well. You have a chapter called the joy boosting delight of shared ministry. That, that chapter title is rather Piper-esque if I do say so myself. Um, but I want to read an excerpt. This is just a paragraph or so. Uh, and then ha- have you comment on that. This is uh, starting at the bottom of 137. In fact, Church cultures are sometimes marked by rivalry, self-protection, and competing agendas. The Apostle Paul got this. While the Philippian church and its leadership had many assets, wholehearted unity was not among them. Paul exhorts the church, quote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. End quote. That's from Philippians 2.3. Selfish ambition and conceit were undermining the unity and joy in the Philippian church. Later on in chapter 4, Paul mentions two women, Yodia and Syntyche, with disagreements so profound that he must address it publicly from prison. This wasn't just messy for Paul. It was joy-killing. For him, unity inspired delight. Uh, quote, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, end quote, Philippians 2.2. When we dissect Paul's vision of unity, we find gritty ingredients like humility, Philippians 2.3, and an earnest commitment to the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. When these key values become practiced, team cultures grow healthy and ministry becomes sweet. Paul's vision reminds us of a principle that's true of pluralities. The greater the unity among the workers, the deeper their joy in the work. And that's the end of the extended quote. What is it about ministering together in a healthy plurality that brings joy? 
Yeah, so so just to qualify that section, um, for those of you that know me, um, you, I, I write on joy because I aspire to it, not because I embody it. And uh, <laughs> you know, I would be somebody who would turn inward easily and have dark nights of the soul more often than I care to admit. Um, but Marty, I, I think that because unity and humility are so important to God and even reveal to us things about the nature and relationship of the Trinity, mm. uh, and because healthy pluralities then require humility and unity, we, we find ourselves experiencing deeper joy when we are walking in unity and exercising humility it 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 make you know making our conduct kind of worthy of of the gospel because pluralities just don't work without humility mm. they they don't work without patience without godliness without forbearance and long suffering and and honestly this is why some leaders avoid it because um you know there's a value of expedience and uh, I was just telling some guys earlier, we just had a cohort in a GCC cohort um, and had eight guys here in in Southwest Florida for three days. And and one of the, at one point we were talking about this book um, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by a guy named Larry Crater. Crater. Um, and he contends that patience was the preeminent virtue of the early church, the first three centuries. Yeah, it was the mark of maturity that they looked for in leaders and in believers because there just wasn't the power and the control to be able to move things forward. Mm -hmm. So expedience assumes power to move people and mm -hmm. systems. But when you're like a, you know, a, a persecuted people, all, all of the urgency in the world doesn't necessarily bring progress or or peace. Mm. So so the elder who gets plurality begins to understand that um, that God uses plurality to build the character qualities and to reinforce the very character qualities that he calls for in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That part of the design of plurality is to reinforce that and fortify that. And that's why Marty this is a vision this is a vision worth fighting for. Mm. Because we, we get to do ministry together, but we also get to grow closer to Jesus as a result of that. We get to have experiences of leading together. And we've all had those experiences and, 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 and those times in our life when we've done something with other people where we feel like we're truly flourishing because we had that experience of interdependence. And, and, and those are the sort of moments that we feel most most alive when when our gifts are in service of something that's that's a we rather than a me. Mm. And and, you know, my goal in writing this book was just to fight for that future and to tell guys, hey, spend spend the next two to three years building that future for your church and and for your elders and and for yourself, because you know what? Ministry will become a different experience, and I, I don't think you'll regret it. That's fantastic. The book is The Plurality Principle, How to Build and Maintain a Thriving Church Leadership Team by Dave Harvey, published by Crossway and, and the Gospel Coalition. 
you can pick it up. And if you're a pastor, I would uh, I strongly encourage you to pick it up, not only for yourself, but for your elder team and work through it together, uh, pray through it together, evaluate together. Uh, it's it's definitely a, uh, a winner. It's it's a great book for ministry, and I highly recommend it. Dave, man, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for hanging out, and thanks for writing this book. Thanks, Marty. I'll see you soon, man. Thank you for listening to Launch, the GCC podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, why not take a moment to do that in your favorite podcast app? Also, rate and review the podcast when you get a moment. That helps us with search results and recommend us to your friends, maybe other pastors that you know who will benefit from the content from this podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our website if you haven't done that already. It's gccollective.org. That's gccollective.org. And there's a lot of helpful information. There's articles. There's how you can join the GCC, whether a church planter or an existing church, and plenty of other content that will help you grow spiritually and encourage you in your leadership journey.